0: Thank you. Class, that's morning spelled with a U so you know it's a pun, which means you know that I am very funny and oh so clever. Thank you for listening to Cool School, a horror history podcast here on the UnPops Network. If you find yourself with a spare minute and you'd like to let the algorithm know how much you like us, you can rate and review us wherever you go to get your podcast needs met. And I personally would greatly appreciate that. Who am I? I'm Andy Sell, hi, and I'm really excited for today's Extra Dreaded episode because I'm talking to one of my favorite people about two of my favorite movies. The guest is Eric Barnes. He is a sweetheart who I think is great. He's an LA-based writer and comedian and commentator for Wrestling Pro Wrestling, which you can check out at WrestlingProWrestling.com or at WrestlingPW on Twitter. Eric himself can be found at Eric W. Barnes on Twitter. For our double feature project today, Eric sort of chose the 1980 regional splatter pioneer Evil Dead. I say sort of because he'd actually wanted to do Evil Dead 2, but that title had already been chosen by somebody else. And so I said, screw it, we're doing Evil Dead because I really want to pair it with this other movie. And it is the low-budget, stop-motion-laden, young adults versus interdimensional hell monsters cult classic from 1967 or 1970, depending on your perspective, Equinox. What can I say about these two films? A lot, actually. So much, in fact, that it's difficult to find a certain angle of approach in the task of providing a context here in the intro. But I think one of the things that they most have in common is the concept of fandom and of amateur enthusiasm. And fandom is a very complex subject for a lot of reasons. It can definitely... It's evolved into a beast seemingly beyond our control at this point. And there's a lot to explore in that conversation. Like, you know, where does critical become toxic? Where does celebration become fanaticism, etc.? But let's not... Go into all that. Let's talk about the history of horror fandom specifically. If you ask most horror fans of a certain age and certain level of initiation, when and where horror fandom began, they'll likely give you a simple two-word answer. And that answer is Uncle Forey. If you're unfamiliar, Uncle Forey is just one of many aliases for late fandom facilitator, literary agent, author, publisher, producer, historian, and memorabilia collector, Forrest J. Ackerman. And he certainly has a significant place in the story, and I wouldn't want to seem like I'm taking anything away from the Acker monster, because truly, when you look at his legacy, it's pretty impossible to deny him much. Just a few quick bullet points, Ackerman coined the very term sci-fi. He was, as far as anyone knows, the first person to wear a costume to a science fiction convention, and has the distinguished claim of having introduced Ray Bradbury to Ray Harryhausen. So even before he got into the horror appreciation content game, he had already revolutionized the worlds of science fiction and fantasy fandom. But, if you know me, you know that I always like to follow the thread a little further back, and like most things the story of horror fandom is a little more complex than it sprang out of Dr. Acula's head fully formed and ready for battle. We could go back further than this, but let's just put our marker at 1929 for now. By 1929, Harry Houdini had been dead for a few years, and the popularity of stage magic and spiritualism, both things he had helped to influence, were beginning to fade. America's post-World War I fascination with the paranormal was seeking other outlets, and people in general were moving from live entertainment to talkies and radio programming. Now, one magician who was affected by the shifting trends was a man named Elwin Charles Peck, more widely known by his stage name of L. Wynn Peck developed a traveling live show called Elwyn's Midnight Spook Party, and the Midnight Ghost Show was born. Equal parts vaudeville, carnival, and parlor room seance, the Midnight Ghost Shows were more about providing entertainment than giving anyone an honest glimpse into the fabled other side. And their evolution throughout the next handful of decades would track cultural changes and how the concept of entertainment would grow and respond. The early Ghost Shows usually consisted of the host's introduction, some mentalism, magic tricks, optical illusions, sound effects, prop effects, and audience participation, and would culminate in a blackout where all the lights in the auditorium would go out and cast members in ghost and monster costumes would run around in the audience terrorizing the crowd of mostly teenagers and young adults. By the late 30s, the screening of a feature-length horror film would be added to many of the ghost shows, which would make the hosts of such shows the very first prototypes of horror hosts. In the early 1940s, Toledo-based entertainer Jack Baker and his wife and brother found widespread success with their Dr. Silkini's Asylum of Horrors midnight ghost show, which is more interested in the comedic aspects of the premise, going so far as to incorporate sketch comedy and spoofing the conventions of spiritualism. By the 1960s, the ghost shows were still going and still changing, by this point having to get more extreme in their depictions and themes to compete with an ever more sophisticated public, beginning to bear as much resemblance to the gore spectacles of the Grand Guignol as the quaint Pepper's Ghost effects and automatic writing that inspired Peck's show. The influence of the ghost shows can be felt in the works of various horror and horror-adjacent cultural mavens, ranging from Alice Cooper to William Castle to Guar to Chris Angel. The craze was so stubbornly popular that in 1965 there was even a movie made specifically to be shown at midnight ghost shows called Monsters Crash the Pajama Party. But let's go back to the 1940s for just a moment. In 1944, a midnight ghost show called Spook Scandals opened at the President Theater on Broadway in New York City. It featured a then-relatively-unknown slash pin model model-slash-showgirl-slash-dancer named Mila Nemi. And this show, which played on Broadway, was, like many of the others of its kind, successful in its purposes. But things were changing. And it wasn't just a maturing audience, including the gradual aging-out factor of many of the older showgoers, that forced these shows to evolve. They were also competing with the previously mentioned titans of motion pictures and radio, and by the early 1950s, the added threat of television. In 1953, two things happened that would change the horror landscape and set up even more monumental shifts to come. The first being a residuals payment plan put into motion by the Screen Actors Guild that would allow a wide distribution of B-movies for broadcast on television. And two, our friend from the Broadway spook scandals Midnight Ghost Show, Myla Neme, who had changed her name to Myla Normie by then, went to Lester Horton's costume ball, the Ball Karib, dressed in a look modeled primarily after Morticia Adams from the Addams Family comic strip and won first place. Side note, keep in mind here, this was a full decade before the strip had been adapted into a television series, And honestly, it was so young. The character of Morticia hadn't actually even been given a proper name yet. Anyway, Myla Normie goes to the costume ball, dressed as Morticia, or as she was known then, the ghoul woman, and wins first place, which was $2,000. But also, she caught the attention of Hollywood producer Hunt Stromberg Jr., who was looking to set up a show to host these newly acquired B-pictures on television. Hunt and Myla got together. Myla changed the look a bit, added some beatnik personality, vamped it up, and used the name her husband came up with, which was Vampyra. Across the country, B-movies were airing in late-night slots so as to avoid strict FCC regulations on indecent content, and on April 30th, 1954, on KABC-TV in Los Angeles... Dig Me Later Vampira aired, and the relatively young phenomenon of the Midnight Movie was given its greatest gift, the horror host. Now, the show never aired outside of Los Angeles, and it only lasted a year because in 1955, Nurmi had a dispute with ABC over rights to the character, and both parties walked away unhappy. Nurmi resurrected the show for a brief and unsuccessful stint on another station in 1956. Unfortunately for her, It didn't last. But the thing is, the mark had already been made. And the shame here is that Vampyra's premature end was largely a matter of timing. Her sin was being too ahead of the time. If she had just managed to keep Vampyra on the air for another two years, things would have almost certainly worked out differently for her. Because in June of 1957, Screen Gems a subsidiary of Columbia Pictures acquired 550 Universal films to air on television in a 10-year lease. They were often packaged by genre or star or subject. 52 of these films became Shock Theater, which originally aired that year in, when else, October. Also in that year, Forrest J. Ackerman had his first meeting in person with a man named James Warren. James Warren was a writer and artist from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who had started publishing a magazine called After Hours in the wake of the success of Playboy. Yes, it was a quote-unquote gentleman's magazine. And only four issues were published before Warren was arrested for violating Philadelphia obscenity laws. One of those issues, however, contained a pictorial called The Girls of Science Fiction Movies, that was submitted by one Forrest J. Ackerman. This submission began a correspondence between Warren and Ackerman, which then led to a friendship and led to them meeting in person for the first time in late 1957 in New York City. At this meeting, Ackerman showed Warren a copy of a magazine called Cinema 57, which was a French publication about fishing. I'm, I'm kidding, it's movies, it's called Cinema. Now, the name of the magazine was Cinema, followed by the last two digits of the year of its publication. For example, the first issue was in 1954, so in that year, the title was Cinema 54. This being 1957, the title was Cinema 57. The issue that Ackerman showed Warren was specifically issue number 20 from July and August of 1957, and it was a special one-off on horror science fiction fantasy films subtitled Les Fantastiques and the cover was a photo from Werewolf of London. Ackerman thought that this magazine represented an opportunity. Warren agreed. Both of them had grown up watching the Universal Monster movies, and now, with all of these movies airing on television as part of the Shock Theater package, which, in a lot of places, were hosted by horror hosts, beginning with Philadelphia's own Zacherly, a.k.a. Roland. And there's a really great documentary on the history of horror hosts called American Scary that I highly recommend. Anyway, Ackerman convinced Warren that this was the way to go. And just five months after the first shock theater film started airing, the first issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland hit the stands. The initial issue was just meant to be a one-off, but it was such a success that they started publishing regularly. And this is where a lot of people will tell you horror fandom was born. Famous Monsters of Filmland was a cultural item about the appreciation of cultural items. And more so, it fostered a space for young monster movie and horror fans to reach out and connect with each other through the letters and ads posted in the magazine ackerman turned his house into the acker mansion a museum of memorabilia and ran columns about other memorabilia collectors including one young fan named dennis murin in the may 1962 issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, a letter was published from a kid named Dave Allen who wanted to connect with other horror fans and monster kids in his area, which led to him meeting Dennis Murin and Mark McGee. By 1965, these three friends had decided they wanted to make a movie. With their eyes set on making a midnight movie for horror hosts to air, they got to work on the development of a project known as The Equinox, A Journey into the Supernatural. That film would later be picked up and released as Equinox in 1970. And it would start the careers of the most influential voices in the cinema of the fantastic, because Dennis Murin was the founder of Industrial Light and Magic. And this is what it's all about, right? Like, these are the, these, I I love these sublime moments of, like, the interconnectivity of things, of seeing where one thing leads to another. And also, it's worth noting that, you know, it might seem, because, you know, life can sometimes seem pretty long, it might seem like a lot of these things are so far in the past, but let's remember, Forrest Ackerman was a teenager when the first Dracula movie came out, and I was almost in my 30s when Forrest Ackerman died. Hell, in my 30s, I met Carla Lamley who was in the original Dracula. Granted, it was at her 100th birthday, but my point is is that even by the metric of our own lives, these things are a lot closer together than we tend to think they are. It's not ancient history. The past always reaches for the future, and sometimes it doesn't even have to stretch much. There are still midnight movies. Sure, the phenomenon has gone through a lot of changes over the years, but what was born out of those midnight ghost shows still exists, more or less. You can see it in a lot of things. Horror hosts are still around. Svengoolie is still on the air every Saturday on MeTV. Elvira just celebrated her 40th anniversary. John Bloom, a.k.a. Joe Bob Briggs, regularly hosts a show on Shudder. And I guess this is what I'm trying to get at in my own weird way, is this, this togetherness of it all. Which points to the thing that I really do love about fandom. The idea of community. It's a shared space, whether we're talking about going to see a midnight movie or the midnight ghost shows, even back in the 1930s, or even the horror hosts on television. They're introducing a film to you. They're joking with you. They're giving you information. You're not watching this film alone. Even if you're alone in your own place watching it, that horror host is with you, guiding you, sharing the experience with you. And that's where we should find the strength in fandom i know it can get frustrating with gatekeeping and toxicity and and the constant struggles between the let people enjoy things and the overly critical it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we're all in this for the same reason we like this we want to be here we want to hold the hand of the person next to us and scream and some of us want to get together and make our own little movies. Get a camera, get some armatures, get some fake blood. Whether you're in the Hollywood Hills or a cabin in Tennessee, this shared experience, this shared appreciation compels us to create, even if it's just, I don't know, a podcast about horror movies. There's this desire to chip in and not just take, and to welcome others and to be welcomed. And that brings me to my guest, Eric Barnes who is one of the most welcoming people I've ever met in my life. And I'm really happy that I got to have this conversation with him. Before we get into that, I would just like to take this opportunity to thank Adam Todd Brown and the Unpopular Opinion Network for continuing to distribute this show. And I want to acknowledge some sources with some citations. There's, of course, the aforementioned documentary, American Scary, which, again, I highly recommend. There's Matt Novak's Paleo Future article, The Rise and Fall of the Midnight Ghost Shows, Jim Nipples' Den of Geek article, Midnight Spook Shows, A Brief History, The Backyard Monsters, Equinox, and the Triumph of Love essay by my friend Brock Deshane, which I believe you can still find on the Criterion website. And of course, as always, Wikipedia. I'd also like to thank my mom, Suzanne Sell, for getting me into horror movies, and honestly literally anyone that's ever watched or discussed horror movies with me we're part of a thing and i appreciate you and i'm glad you're here and if you're listening to this thank you obviously you're listening to this because you're hearing me say this but thanks for listening thanks for being a part of this because you know i can't spell good morning without you now let's go and listen to this wonderful conversation that I w- had the privilege of having with Eric Barnes about Evil Dead and Equinox. Yeah, that was it was a cool and rainy day the last time that we Who, spoke we met in
1: person which which was watching one of the movies we're talking about today. I'll yeah, know. we watched yeah. one of the
0: movies. Yes, mm-hmm. first of all, hello. Hello. <laughs> It's so good to see you in your face.
1: It is so good to see you in your face.
0: I want to know, Uh Brass Tacks now, Uh where does the evil dead touch you? Where? (laughs) What's the story? It's
1: it's definitely not where the trees have touched other people.
0: Oh gosh, yeah, no. Mm, Uh, Stay out of those uh, those woods,
1: man. Those trees are... Those
0: trees are (laughs) Uh, 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 uh,
1: cancelled. We're grabbing our uh, neck shirt holes uh, which which also sounds sexual somehow where does evil dead touch me oddly enough in terms of the franchise as a whole i i love it i prefer evil dead 2 and army of darkness (laughs) over evil dead which i know is the hottest of takes and i I'm i'm a fan of the the television show i'm a fan of sam raimi's work i'm a fan of bruce campbell both as a performer and as a person I happen to be strong, friendly acquaintances with his son, who does a lot of game streaming, and he. Oh, cool! And he's also a, a very lovely individual. I uh, this is the I'm going to go starfucky a little bit. I That's have fun. never, I have never met Bruce Campbell. I have watched the Royal Rumble at his house, so <laughs> that, that, which is probably one of the most L.A. things I could I could bring up. That's actually how I met Meta's son was through wrestling, of all things, and going to like a PWG show. And then I realized, I didn't realize it until I was watching the Rumble, just hanging with my friend, like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then proceeded to just have fun having that little tidbit in my head. Well, when was the first time you saw Evil Dead? The first time I saw, uh, well, I first saw Army of Darkness. Like, okay, uh, so I thought it was an awesome movie, despite the fact I had no idea of what was going on because I didn't see the other films. But I was at an age in which that didn't matter.
0: Yeah, I also think that it's one of those films that it kind of it doesn't really matter. Like, it kind of feels it's it's sort of each one of the films I think in this you know trilogy, not including the remake, although the remake certainly qualifies for this as well because. What I'm saying is that each one of these films can't stand on its own. Yeah, you know, Evil Dead. Oh, 2, definitely. You know, essentially the first half of Evil Dead too, right? Like that's the thing about it is it's it's a remake of the first movie, loosely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Army of Darkness kind of just says, "All right, you're caught up. Let's go."
1: It's kind they, of uh, Army of Darkness is kind of like watching an Avengers movie without seeing all the other like Iron Mans and Captain Americas and all that type of stuff. And in the in the fact, it's like, yeah, this is who these people are. Uh, let's move on. But I saw Army of Darkness probably when I was 11 or 12 years old. And then, you know, it was all I knew because I didn't equate Evil Dead to them. And it wasn't until friends kind of clued me in of like, no, 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 that's the third part of a trilogy. And I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) What are and the other ones called? <laughs> Evil Dead. I'm like, well, why didn't it? Why wasn't it called Evil Dead Three: Army of Darkness or something mm-hmm. like? You or know, Medieval
0: Dead. I yes! still, I'm still like, why did we not? Why didn't they just call it that?
1: Oh like, my god, right, is, you know, that is the first time I've ever heard of it. Now I'm mad too that <laughs> that it wasn't called that. But and then I was clued in. It's like, yeah, Evil Dead Two is sort of a remake of the first one. So maybe watch the first one. And I watched the first one, and I initially. Through no fault of the films, I initially thought oh, it's not as f- – I didn't th- think of it as good because mm-hmm. I expected the over-the-top zaniness mm-hmm. that the franchise would come to be. And while there were certainly some over-the-top stuff in the original Evil Dead, it was uh, very, by comparison, grounded. And at the same, <laughs> same time – Which
0: is kind of insane. Uh,
1: yeah, I know. It's insane to think that, you know, oh, oh – well yeah. <laughs> this one's very grounded as you watch a tree rape a woman.
0: Yeah, or uh, or you know the the giant hands popping out of corpses. Yeah, or, yeah. Like it is. It, the thing is, is it kind of it foretells of uh, in a lot of ways the things yeah. to come with Sam Raimi stylistically and sense of humor wise. Oh yeah, but yeah, compared to those other films, it does feel much more like a straight ahead horror movie.
1: Yeah, and and I and I would say it's uh, definitely. Evil Dead Two and Army of Darkness, it was the intent was to scare and then laugh, entertain to kind of break the tension. Whereas this mm-hmm. one just beats you over the head with the tension a little bit more than I would personally like, mm-hmm. but but it's understandable. And have content that has not aged particularly well, which we have. I don't mean to, I don't mean to beat a dead tree, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Well, it's still eh, hey, ha. Yeah. And, it, and,
0: it's a thing that
1: you know has its. We can say that it's wrong. We can say that it's wrong. Yeah, we but can. But that say doesn't we, and that doesn't make uh, the movie as a whole like awful. It's just one of those things of this was written by a heterosexual man that wanted to proceed the plot in a way that wasn't cool.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of want to move on from that subject just because I feel like it yeah. is it is something it is something where you can you know you there are many. There are, there are many different angles on it. And one thing that I do know with, with the – during production, they they didn't really understand, I feel like, what they were – I mean, they knew what they were doing. Right. It's one of those things where, like, at one point they watched a, an assembly of it. They, they watched a cut of that scene, and they said – and Robert Tapper was like, no, let's go. We could push it further. This is according to Sam Raimi. hmm uh, we can push this further. We can make it more overt. And they they shot so much of it. It's again a lot of the effect shots and things were shot later. Were reshoots that were shot later in Michigan after they'd done finished principal photography in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. The cabin. That's that's another thing. Is this is a it's a very low budget labor of love movie where it's like thirteen it, people living and together it shows.
1: For it's very several months. And it shows in all the, in all the good ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes they, you know, they cut something together, and they, <laughs> you know, you don't really realize the impact of something while you're shooting it. Oh yeah, until it's cut together. And I think in this case, this scene, I believe, was one of the ones Joel Cohen edited of the Cohen Brothers. Yeah, he was a, he was first assistant editor on the film, and I know that he he cut a lot of the action stuff. And it is one of those things that maybe also this is right after, uh, you know, this is this is right after the '70s where movies kind of went harsher in that yeah. realm.
1: And no, I hope you know that I'm not lambasting an entire film based on one scene. It's oh, just, I know. It was so, and yeah, there's it's a, also, it is a thing that's worth discussion. It is worth discussion. And there's a reason why it was pretty much implied but not shown in Evil Dead 2.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, there's like a, there's like a cut that's like a, yeah, almost yeah. a punchline cut. And it, it, it is something they kept in the remake, which uh, the way they handled it in the remake was, I think almost worse because it was almost like, and I am not one of those anti-remake people. I actually really, really enjoy the Evil Dead remake. Mm -hmm. But in doing that scene, they tried to make it matter more narratively. Like they tried to make it more a part of the possession story. And like, that's how it happened. But in doing that, it almost makes it seem more lurid, makes it seem more...
1: Justified in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to say, you know, the, the, it's, it's a well, topic. I, it's like, I'm sorry that we got stuck on, on this topic, me, but, in, but I find it very interesting in terms of, you know, what, if there's any narrative justification to have such a scene that doesn't come off as, insensitive or problematic or that type of thing. And I'm of the opinion of if you have to ask that question, it's not worth exploring. Fair, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not worth putting in your movie, especially since at the base level of everything creatively, uh, you're like, no, it's made up. So make up something else. It's that simple yeah. uh, that it, you, you choose to include it or not. Like, Say what you want about John Landis, and there's plenty to say. But he <laughs> asked a question—I'm paraphrasing—but he sort of asked the question, "What kills vampires?" And the answer is, whatever the fuck you want. They're not real.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So anyway, but yeah, in terms of evil, in terms of people dead, I—I I loved it. It's probably tied to me with Texas Chainsaw as my favorite horror franchise just because I'm a comedy nerd and I love the ridiculousness and the badassness of having a chainsaw hand and, you mm-hmm. know, just Ash Williams is a fucking dynamic, iconic character. And I love the Showtime series that was there and... Stars. Or Stars. Stars, <laughs>
0: I just I used to work for Stars. So. No,
1: you're not uh, <laughs> you, you were right in correcting me, but you gotta admit, Stars is the RC Cola to Showtime's Yeah.
0: look, you're not getting to Showtime's
1: wait. Pepsi to HBO's Coca-Cola.
0: Yeah. They, uh. Yeah, they're not Yeah, so yeah, you're not like it's Spartacus Outlander, Party mm-hmm. Down, Ash vs mm-hmm. Evil Dead, those are the successes. Stars, you can what, is that one hand or one and a finger? Mm-hmm. But
1: and which The other is, hand's
0: a goddamn chainsaw. So yeah, the which, other hand's a chainsaw, and I—I yeah. I, I, that was actually cool. I actually got to go to the premiere of that at the at the Chinese at the TCL. Oh, that's Iggy awesome. Pop. They like closed off Hollywood Boulevard, and Iggy Pop played, and it was fun. Look, it's a fun <laughs> show. It's a really good show.
1: <laughs> I love how every transition sounds like you're 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 under a hot lamp. And, <laughs> and look. this is, how I, look, okay. this is how I yeah. Listen. I am I am constantly <laughs> This is what the podcast is. I'm not gonna justify anything to you. Let's move on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do I do constantly feel like my inner uh
1: your default setting is interrogated suspect in law and order. Yeah. You've never done mind you, you've never done the crime. But yeah. you're just being yelled at and you're like, stop it. Yeah. I yeah I'm, over, it. I'm over. I'm over. I right just right. work at the mill <laughs> where the body was found. The, the body lady. that was dismembered.
0: <laughs> yeah. I look, I there was a tape, it was a real-to-real tape. I didn't play it, so I don't know what I you I I
1: didn't kill anybody. I just have a knife collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My hand did it. <laughs> my hand. It's, it's not me. It's my, my de- hand. It's my dead aunt. She keeps telling me to do things that I don't like.
0: <laughs> Someone uh, in my fruit cellar. Oh, no. Okay.
1: Don't hit me with the apples again.
0: Yeah, because now that I remember, you did want to do Evil Dead 2, but somebody else had already chosen Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I was
1: like... Also, I think to your credit, the first evil dead uh, mirrors the other film that we're talking about much more Mm -hmm. than evil dead two does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. I think so. Now there are shots in evil dead two that are, I think arguably directly lifted from shots in the other film. Mm -hmm. But that aside, like there's just so much in common between the two, between evil dead and equinox, which is the other film. And that's the film that I chose because I, This is one of those cases where I had this planned already. Most of the time, someone gives me a movie and it's like, okay, give me some time to think of something. And then I usually come up with like four or five options in my head. And then I settle on one that's like, okay, this is the one. And there have been only a couple occasions where it's been like, all right, no, this one for sure. And this is, I think, the only one. No, it's two. Because Nadav Fleischer, when he picked Hellraiser, I was like, Jigoku. I, I literally was thinking about that while I was watching Jigoku. But this... Is one yeah? This is the other one where it was like I know what I'm doing if somebody picks Evil Dead, and that's I why I think I was like, oh, you want to do Evil Dead too? No, you're doing Evil Dead, and this is the movie that's <laughs> going with it. Because I also think that you could understand the other, you could appreciate the other film.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because you I'm, are, I'm I'm a film guy. I, you're, I just, yeah, yeah so you're,
0: I So you're not just a film guy. You're a you're a you're a fantastic film guy. Oh, you so are so a that. you like fantastic film. You like you like kayfabe you like that's the other thing you're a wrestling fan so there's a wink and a nod in the presented reality of fantasy yeah, yeah. and you're fine with that yeah and
1: yeah as long as the fantasy established it follows the rules that it itself establishes then i yeah. good to go
0: yeah that's what this movie to me is that's what equinox is it's wrestling, it's comic books. It's that like we're aware of what we're doing and yeah you can see the seams. But this but come on. Yeah. Like come on. Yeah. Just and just give yourself over to the illusion here. And I and I love that. I love that even now, you know, I at the time it's one of those things where it's like, oh, put yourself in a 1970s audience, you know, watching this film for the first time. I feel like you still would kind of be like, yeah, this is this is low budget. It's cheap. It's schlocky. A it's a little
1: out there. But uh, but at the same time, it's very imaginative. Yeah. And that's the thing is that it goes from kind of like a satanic horror to interdimensional to you see Ray Harryhausen monsters Mm -hmm. and all that type of stuff, which oddly enough is what happens in Evil Dead is that it just raises (laughs) the bar and not even limiting it to just the first evil dead movie but over time it the first film obviously shows a lot of one to one elements that equinox has but over time in terms of the effects and in terms of like harry monsters and all that type of thing you can definitely see oh this it's still it's still plucking from the equinox mm-hmm. tree
0: yeah well they they all that's because they all kind of share you know just by virtue of of it being a bunch of kids wanting to make a monster movie Mm -hmm. without a lot of resources just to do it. Like just by virtue of them both being in that same space, there's just automatically going to be a lot of things in common because that world is also something that sort of was created by or fostered at least by Forrest J Ackerman Mm -hmm. and famous monsters of film land magazine, which is how Equinox came to be Dennis Murin and Dave Allen and Mark McGee, we're all friends who met through their love of monster movies and their fandom from with famous monsters of filmland magazine. I mean, forie Ackerman even hooked them up with Fritz Leiber to play professor Waterman, which is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it's just kind of like that space, that fandom, but we want to do it space. What you would, some people would call pro-am or some people would just call amateur or some people would, you know, whatever you term it, for about. I call it, it making
1: a movie out of love with your friends. That's what exactly.
0: I Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and it's that common element. It's existed throughout a lot of different, not just horror genre, but I mean, that's where I, you know, that's where I, that's where I find it. But it's in science fiction. It's in, it's in literature. It's in wrestling. It's in, yeah. you know, the indie wrestling world. It's. Yeah. It's these people that want to grow up watching something and they want to do that thing.
1: For people that don't know, I am a commentator for a group called Wrestling Pro Wrestling, which is a comedy wrestling promotion that, while it doesn't isolate non-wrestling fans or new fans that wish to enjoy the show, a lot of the jokes and a lot of the humor is better appreciated. I wouldn't say better appreciated, even though I just did, but can be (laughs) even more appreciated by longtime fans of pro wrestling, because it has little tongue in cheek inside jokes to the nature of the art form itself. And you can definitely see that in especially the later Evil Dead movies. And you can see that in both these films too that it was a labor of love. And much like how these people loved horror movies, loved monster movies. So they're like, fuck, let's make our own and we'll just add this element. And ooh, can we do that? And all that. That's how WPW works. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of putting matches together, it's like, oh, let's do this fun thing, which could reference this other thing that I loved, which also has a hint of our own spin and originality to it.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Ray Harryhausen worked for Willis O'Brien on King Kong. like He, he was like a, a student, more or less, of Willis O'Brien. Mm-hmm. And then Ray Harryhausen, while he was doing his thing, Dennis Murin sort of became his protege in a way. And Dennis Muren then, of course, went on to do Star Wars and Jurassic Park and all of these amazing things. But you see him start here as a kid, fueled by this love for Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien and Bradbury and Lovecraft. And it's all, you know, it's all in here. And it all, yeah. Tom Sullivan, who did the, who did special effects for Evil Dead, grew up reading Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine and saw Equinox when he was a kid. Like Equinox was a movie that inspired him yeah. creatively. You know, it's, it's one of those things where like some people like to be like, oh, well, Sam Raimi must have ripped off Evil Dead a little bit because this, the number of similarities between the two films are staggering. It's,
1: it's nuts. It's, it's kind really of crazy. i never even heard of, of Equinox before you introduced it to me. And then watching it, I'm like, oh, my God, there's so much, so much. Mm-hmm. To, to the point that it seems like Evil Dead is an homage film to Equinox. It it
0: really does. And and Evil Dead 2 definitely has shots that are direct homages to shots in Should we give a brief synopsis
1: of Equinox? Yeah. Since it's (laughs) a lesser known film to probably the greater audience that you have.
0: Yeah, so Equinox, which was originally titled The Equinox, A Journey into the Supernatural, which I love. Mm -hmm. And also the parallel there being that Evil Dead started also as a short film made by kids called Within the Woods. But so the Equinox, the Journey into the Supernatural, a.k.a. Equinox, was this labor of love produced by Dennis Murin, Dave Allen, Jim Danforth, and Mark McGee were like the core personnel. And through like resources that they got from like Forrey Ackerman and that world and, you know, their parents and like there they were kids that had a camera and
1: used they to make somehow movies and through, them together. Through shoestrings and hope, they made a movie.
0: They made a movie. Yeah. It was later picked up by block producer Jack Harris, who hired Jack Woods, uh, who was a sound guy and an editor to reshoot some things and to add more footage. And then it include himself in a weird role for some reason. He plays Asmodeus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then it got a, a release. And why don't you t- <laughs> give the rundown of the synopsis of the film, the actual premise, the plot. Sure. Cause it's just, uh, it's basically it's, kids versus demons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's four teenagers played by 30 year olds. Going, no, they were those
0: guys were all like.
1: I know that they were. Here's the thing uh, they really are young actors, but they are young actors in the 1970s, which means they all yeah. look like they're in their 30s. Well, and actually, for whatever reasons.
0: The, the majority of this was shot in the 60s. Uh, oh, this, even better, this, yeah. Like, they started filming or started at least development in 65, and then I think we're doing most of the photography in like 66, 67. And then it just took three years for for it to get picked up and released. So So yeah, it's like late 60s. So like they look like they're 30-year-olds.
1: So the movie actually starts at the end, which is just uh, one of... It is a character through a recording device telling their story, which is these 14 slash college students going on a picnic slash rescue mission, possibly. One guy is going there to visit a professor of theirs that said, to come, and his friend brought a date and said, "I got a date for you too." And oh boy, what a fun, what a fun date to go on!
0: And sorry, in the uh, non-theatrical version, there's this whole subplot where they're just stopping there on their way to interesting to a party.
1: It's Which really, seems more natural, oddly, right? It's yeah, it's
0: like it's one of those things where when I watched the the, the version that they had made without that. With that subplot intact, it's like, oh, this makes a little more sense for some reason.
1: I don't want to hang out and possibly fuck a girl. I want to go help my old professor friend. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> weird. So they go there. They find that the professor's cabin has been abandoned. They've run into a what they who they think is a park ranger named Asmodeus. <laughs> you know, a common name for a white man in the 1960s to have. Uh, Asmodeus Asmodeus That's so funny. Who, who, Who tells them, hey, you probably should leave uh, I didn't see any professor here Shut up And they run into a man with a book And the man gives them the book and says It's your problem now, ha ha And they find out that this book is The Book of the Damned And they proceed to Find out that This is where I get a little fuzzy That Somehow they have stumbled upon kind of the nexus or the equinox, if you will, uh, between our material plane (laughs) and a different material plane, like a portal to possibly hell. And one of the women characters is solopily sexually assaulted by Asmodeus, but is protected by a crucifix. They, fashion other holy relics to protect them from demons and Ray Harryhausen esque ape things. Yes. Uh,
0: by the way, that, that creature's name is Taurus. Taurus. That's right. That sequence represents the first time that front projection is used in an American feature film. Interesting. For those effects. Yeah. I think it was a year later that Douglas Trumbull did that in 2001. Mm-hmm. And it gets credit for being the first, but the first oh, time it happened right. was yeah. in Equinox.
1: Um, Shit, yeah. And
0: Douglas Trumbull, who also went on to turn down a position at ILM <laughs> for some
1: reason, it's so weird. Yeah, I mean, but but yeah, you know, other horrific things ensue. Asmodeus is revealed to be the devil because, of course, he is. He's named Asmodius.
0: Yeah. yeah, he's not <laughs> either the devil or he's like. Religious, you know, it's one of
1: the, it's like he's he's maybe he's a Mennonite, the most A cab Mennonite I've ever seen, <laughs> uh, uh, and ultimately one of the young friends gets possessed, and only one person survives. The person who's recording that we're hearing at an insane asylum, who is desperately clutching to his cross this entire time to protect himself mm-hmm. because a demonic entity. Told him that he will die within one year and one day of this occurrence, and at the end of the movie, which is the movie, which it, its narrative device is reporter that wants a story about this guy. <laughs> yeah. a Year and one day later, after yeah. the fact,
0: yeah, he's and, like it doesn't seem like anything's the, gonna happen,
1: and that's the thing is that at the very end, he's like, "Well, this isn't fucking interesting," and then he walks away, <laughs> and that's when, and that's when one of the murdered or possessed teens shows up to kill our narrator because he and the cross have been separated. Yeah. And that's the end yeah. of the movie is you just yeah. see this teen walk calmly into the asylum as if they could just, honestly, it was 1960s. I, I don't know what their security was back then. Maybe they could have just let let her in. They she, let a random reporter in, so why yeah. not?
0: She's just she's just gonna walk, or she's gonna like yeah. spread the possession, maybe. Because it's maybe other thing.
1: she's it's it's a, it's ambiguous as to what his fate will be, but it's yeah. presumed that he's going to get killed.
0: Well, we also don't know if it's possessed her or if it's the oh. doppelganger her from the other dimension.
1: Yeah, because that's, that's true. the thing
0: too. Frank, by the way, is Frank Frank Bonner from WKRP in Cincinnati plays the asshole friend character in this movie. Yeah.
1: He does it very well.
0: Too. He does it really well. That's too thing, well. Too. That's another thing this movie has in common. Like I could just run down the list of the things they have in common. We've got both films prominently feature a bridge.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just that in one of them, the bridge breaks down and in the other one, a guy gets hit by a car on it.
1: Oh, oh you're talking parallels between Equinox and Evil Dead.
0: Equinox and Evil yeah. Dead. Yes. Yeah. Both have a book, an evil book from another dimension mm-hmm. that has demonic properties It's called the. I don't think it's called. It's not called the Necronomicon anymore. No,
1: but it's for all intents and purposes. If you look at the inside of the book, a lot of the you know arcane drawings and creepy muscle paintings and stuff like that are very similar. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and they also like. Both in both films it's a college professor who had yep. who, who was in possession of this book. And
1: they use a you know, tape recorder as a narrative device. Yep.
0: There's there's a real real-to-reel audio tape as a narrative device. And in Equinox, that's Forrest J. Ackerman, Uncle Forey himself playing one of the doctors interviewing the guy. Mm. Both films started as shorts.
1: Both with featured a titles. both featured a protagonist with a strong chin.
0: Yes. Yes, and this is the thing. In Evil Dead Bruce Campbell is a big part of why that film is so good he's a big part of why that entire think, series is
1: yeah I was about to say I don't think the the franchise is really a franchise without him specifically as Ash Williams
0: and his performance is a very different take than Edward Connells who played David in Equinox in that in David in, in Equinox he's this he's like a teenager or young adult. That we're that we're to believe is going to react coolly and calmly to all of these things going on. Because he very much does kind of like affect the like He's you know, the the thing from Another World, them, Mm -hmm. Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, like the heroes in those movies that are these like kind of square jawed, like, well, we got there's a problem and we've got to
1: deal with it. And that's
0: kind of how he reacts
1: to it. He has big like he's the dad of the group. Yeah. And
0: it's interesting because this movie is in a lot of ways and it's again it's because they didn't have money to make it a period piece it had to be a contemporary piece and when most monster fantastic monster movies of that time were either set in the future or in the past or in another world or in some yeah. alternate universe where it's not you know, a guy fantastic with a, things happen
1: yeah a guy with a collared shirt and slacks usually is not the lead hero of movies like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But this is a film that's like saying, Oh, it's the here and now it's recognizable Southern California. Mm -hmm. And now there's fucking monsters, Yeah, which is kind of ahead of the game a
1: little bit. I don't have time for this sexual chemistry between us. We have monsters to fight.
0: At at least on this small scale, it was ahead of its time because this is – it's a smaller scope. It's not – we're not looking at how the military is reacting to it. We're not looking at how the president's reacting to it. We're not even looking at how like any kind of authority figures are reacting to it. It's just these kids who are having to deal with these things.
1: It's so odd how apolitical it is really.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, except Asmodeus is, you know, hey, fucking Bureau of Land Management is evil or something. I don't know well, what that's supposed well,
1: to mean. yeah. <laughs> in, fairness, in fairness, Asmodeus is like, well, you can picnic here, but afterward, clean up after yourself, which is just a good message in general.
0: Yeah, it's true. You know? It's true. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> seem to have any kind of a, an agenda in that regard. But it is also, you know, this is after Brando. This is after the 60s where a lot of, acting has kind of uh, changed and become more naturalistic. And this yeah. guy is still just kind of doing the like, I'm the hero, you know, thing yeah. where I'm just going to do the right thing. There's, Whereas there's, in the Evil Dead, Ash is very much, he's like the coward character for most of the film. He's like, a he he's wants timid.
1: To, he, well, his whole, I don't even know if it's really timid. It, it's more of a, ah, fuck, do I have to deal with this? Mm-hmm. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. God, I have to. All right, fine. I'll yeah. deal with this. God, I'm so happy. I'm done dealing with it. Well, God, I gotta deal with this now. That's his yeah, whole yeah. thing.
0: And, and you watch him. You watch it drive him insane. Yeah. until by of course Army of Darkness, he really is this like sort of parody of the square jawed hero. Yeah, with
1: which the I would, which my, which honestly, I would consider that to be kind of like bravery and confidence through trauma. <laughs> Yeah. Than anything else, Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, because I, I and I'm just speaking, uh, you know, to get a little personal here, I've been through some shit. And then I get presented myself and whomever I'm with are presented with like a high stress anxiety situation. And a lot of my friends are like, why are you so calm right now? Mm-hmm. This is fucked up. And in my head, I'm like, Oh, I've been through this before. I'll have my Oh, fuck, what do we do moment later? Once we're through with this, but I got to do the unhealthy thing and just man up. And that's due to my shit language. Man up isn't really a thing, but uh, <laughs> power. No. Th- I'll, I'll power through and feign confidence. You fake it till you make it. And then after I make it, I'll have time to be in a fetal position, pee myself and cry.
0: Yeah. And that's, <laughs> in this case, It's it, it takes a while of him being... Uh... Really far gone before yeah. before he can get to that, and it's it's a more believable thing than yeah. than David in Equinox. But again, it's another similarity is both those characters are pretty far gone by the end of the movie. Yeah, uh, I, or at least I, by I, the end of the story.
1: I, I I hate to interject, but I don't hate it enough because I'm doing it. But I know that Rick and Morty is a very polarizing cartoon. And nah, Rick-
0: it's a great cartoon. It's a shitty fan base.
1: Okay, you said it not me and yeah. you are and you are correct <laughs> and I will say that too. But probably the most real moment, the thing that made me bond with that cartoon the most was towards the beginning of one episode where they had this massive war and they became war heroes. They had medals, they shot through everybody, there was viscera everywhere and they both get into the ship and they just scream and cry for yeah. about five minutes straight, and I'm like, oh my God, that's the most relatable thing I've ever seen on television. And that's how I probably would have processed everything had I been the lead character from Equinox, I forget his name, or Ash Williams. Yeah, I really wish that we could get another season of Ash versus the Evil Dead, and just in the the last episode, or the final episode, he just cries and watches (laughs) Golden Girls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He just he just has a a frozen pizza from S Mart, cracks open a beer, cracks open some Häagen You just hear "Thank you for being a Fred" as he weeps openly mm-hmm. and just grabs a pillow and screams into it, and then yeah. feel and then feels better afterward. Yeah, that's what
0: I was gonna say. He might be a more. Sympathetic character later on, that like you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah, like, yeah, like I will say, I do like Ash vs. Evil Dead a lot, but I also feel like they didn't really deal with that side of it enough. He was still just kind of an old, sad guy, and like, yeah, the joke was on him. Yeah, the, the idea is like we're watching this guy destroy himself, you know, through vices and and just it's itself different forms of self harm without even realizing it. Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was genius when they brought in his dad, the six million dollar man. <laughs> Did the whole like <laughs> thing where you're like oh this is why he's so fucked up because his dad's a monster too yeah and i like that but i also do wish the show had maybe like leaned into it a little more but i don't know maybe i maybe i'm glad they didn't
1: i think both choices are good but just in different directions it depends yeah. on what what you wish to come out of it and i I'm should so- just rewatch the series now yeah me too and i'm sorry about the tangent what, what were some of the other parallels
0: oh it's fine well there's okay yeah, I mean, they both have a young actor that would go on to bigger things. In in this case, in Equinox, it's Frank Bonner. In mm-hmm. Evil Dead, it's obviously Bruce Campbell, but that's also because of Evil Dead. Like right, right. That was his... That was And a thing. frequent
1: collaboration with the director, too. Sam yeah, and Raimi.
0: that's... A lot of people that worked on this continued working with Raimi. Like, Raimi is... That's another thing. Both films established influential partnerships in production that would go on for decades.
1: Yeah, well, that's what happens when... A production is put together by people who were friends initially, yeah, and or you know had a mute, that type of mutual in the trenches connection so early in their career.
0: Yeah, they both have stop motion as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of great stop motion. Oh, and I gotta say, so Dave Allen, who was the stop motion animator and effects guy on Equinox with with Mirren, also did this short and. It's called the magic treasure, and you need to see it. I feel Whoa. like you, like I watched it, and I and I'm like you would love it. I'm, it's it's a, it's a fairy tale. It's like
1: 20 minutes long or I am, something. I'm putting it on JustWatch.com.
0: They both, oh yeah, they both feature a ticking clock noise. And in in yeah. Evil Dead, it's because there's a clock, which is really cool. That clock that's in Evil Dead was built for the movie by a guy who, like, I guess had done it before or something. Cause when they asked him if he could make the clock run in reverse and stop it like manually, he was like, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll get you. It's like a, it's a prop built for effect. And in Equinox, I don't know where the ticking clock noise comes from.
1: Mm -hmm. Didn't both movies have little, like I know in in evil dead, it it initially starts out with this, but didn't they also have like a black void with smoke and then sort of a big reveal. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And
1: so aesthetically, uh, there's not, not just plot devices and character stuff, but there's also aesthetic similarities, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of stylistic choice. Like Sam Raimi, very unique uh, visual style for for his time and also an influential one. Like, yeah. And it's, it's also kind of easy to see, like how he and the Coen brothers, you know, kind of started from similar places. or or started off knowing each other because they both have this, you know, lots of moving cameras, lots of, you know, carefully composed frames. And, and, and a lot of like scrappiness in like, Hey, I want to get a cool shot and we might have to do some, you know, I might have to stand up inside of a hollowed out ceiling (laughs) and slide (laughs) the camera down a beam with Vaseline on it to get the shot, but I'm going to do it.
1: Go full Orson Welles with that shit, yeah. Yeah,
0: but Equinox <laughs> even has a shot where the Taurus creature is coming at Professor Waterman, again, played by Fritz Leiber, who is a influential science fiction and horror writer, in a in a great cameo. It's a POV from the Taurus coming at him, and it's almost the same shot as the as the the Force, you know, coming at Ash at the. I was just dead. about to say, yeah. Uh, both both feature a possession yep. uh, a woman being possessed in and in both cases arguably through an act of sexual assault or aggression
1: right although in equinox one couldn't argue that the execution I uh, the face man it's just such a goofy <sighs> asmodius is
0: asmodius's kiss face yeah 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 it's it's weird it's also weird that that's the director who you know, Jack Woods who was who was hired to, to, yeah. to shoot that stuff. Because that stuff's not in the original.
1: I have to wonder if he made a face like that to kind of offset the grimness of assault. I'm guessing it's not. It's possible. But it's possible. It's possible?
0: Yeah. I mm, uh-huh. let, let have everyone know that I don't mean it? I don't know.
1: I don't know. Not a choice I would have made, but They also both have an asshole friend character. Yep.
0: There's you know, there's missed Mists and smoke all over the place supp- in both films. They're
1: supposed to be having fun in the woods, but instead they stumble upon an archaeology project.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then there's the the shot of the book spinning. Yep. You know, which isn't in the first Evil Dead, but it's in Evil Dead Two, and it's definitely an equinox, and that's why I say I'm pretty sure Evil Dead Two. They were like, "Fuck whatever, it, let's we're gonna, let's, we're gonna do yeah. this."
1: I should mention that listeners can currently watch this film on HBO Max.
0: Yes, yes. Equinox is is currently streaming on Criterion, and and, if you want to watch,
1: and if you want to watch Evil Dead, ask your older brother. He has a copy.
0: Yeah, if you know somebody, if you know any dude, any man of
1: forty five, I'm gonna say thirty.
0: Yeah, I'd say between the ages of like thirty and fifty, they've got multiple copies of Evil Dead.
1: Now, now some of those may be VHS. Yeah, but
0: yeah, yeah that's again the, the Evil Dead movies all notoriously constantly re-released in different formats.
1: Oh, I can remember one of the first DVDs I bought was the director's cut of Army of Darkness.
0: Oh, the one with the brown the brown paper bag. Cover? Yep, that yeah, was the one. Yeah.
1: And I did not know that there was an alternate ending. Oh yeah. So when I saw the alternate ending, I'm like, "Wait, what? The no." No. (laughs) No. And then I had to get, then I had to find uh, another copy of Evil Dead on DVD just so I can have the ending that made me happy. Yeah. (laughs) Not that it was a bad ending, but I just hated that it was a downer. Well,
0: speaking of downer endings, both Evil Dead and Equinox have bleak downer endings. That's true. That dude is definitely going to die. The demons win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Evil Dead, all of Ash's friends are dead,
1: and yeah, and who knows what happens to him? Who knows what happens? Yeah, he could have survived for
0: nothing. They both prominently feature a, a necklace as a significant object with a with a pendant. Equinox, oh. it's a cross; mm-hmm. Evil Dead, it's that little monocle looking thing. Yeah, and both both films were shot on sixteen millimeter and blown up to thirty five for their theatrical releases.
1: Oh, okay. I was about to, I was about to say shot on sixteen millimeter. I'm like, that's a that could be a lot of films. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was like, that's not really a commonality. It's no, like,
0: no. That's just. I just think that's something that they have in common. But again, that's because they're both low budget films <laughs> right, right. made by people right, but, that but, couldn't but, afford thirty five millimeter film. You know?
1: I yeah, that that's true. But initially, I'm like, you might as well just say both films had a director.
0: Yeah, both both movies had a director
1: and a <laughs> uh-huh. cast, and both uh-huh. movies uh, played in theaters. Uh, <laughs> both but, both films are fictional.
0: <laughs> both films, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Jury's out on Equinox. Lots of crazy stuff happens in those woods outside LA. It's true. Uh, but both films do occupy different spaces in the timeline of what we know as midnight movies. Like Equinox, mm. part of one of the reasons that Dennis Murin and, and his friends wanted to make this movie was because they thought that they could get it sold to play on television, which is this is back when. Midnight movie was largely a television phenomenon, uh, with horror hosts. And he thought, well, we could, we could sell it to one of these TV stations to play it with their, with their horror hosts. And you know, what happens was Jack Harris fucking producer of the blob and who interestingly also later on would produce dark star and, and oversee the release of dark star and schlock John Carpenter's first movie and John Landis's first movie respectively. So he Harris had an eye for young talent yeah Equinox was sort of uh, around the beginning of midnight movies and and that kind of phenomenon and enjoyed theatrical runs as a midnight movie and Evil Dead was one of the last midnight movies as the trend kind of died its first death it's yeah it's been brought back several times it's usually archival stuff much like and,
1: zombie and, movies it resurrects. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. that resurrects and an all genre film really yeah. It all, yeah. it all has its, you know, lives and deaths and homages. And, and I'm glad that you uh, showed this to me because it just reinforces the fact of not just film, but all art is influenced by previous art yeah. and that, you know, something that was popularized within a certain era and dies out 20 years or so later gets resurrected just because all of the children or young people that were influenced by that art want to see that again. And they want to, or they saw that and were inspired to be like, Oh, I can, I had a chance to touch this. I can enhance it and make it better and bigger Mm -hmm. and stronger or take this and make it smaller and grounded and more intimate. That's what I think is so wonderful about film is that compared to other art forms, I think it's the most accessible and the most, Transparent regarding that one hand influencing the other, influencing the other in this, oh yeah, in this in this baton handoff that's been yeah. going on ever since the Lumiere brothers or yeah. whatever the fuck.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's also so clear, especially in stuff like this, in stuff like in regional cinemas, <clears throat> in regional films made by amateurs. Which is, by the way, you know, I'm I'm of the Stan Brackage school of amateur is a good word mm-hmm. because it means you're doing it because you love it like literally yeah. that's what it means yeah and and that that transparency and that connection is really clear when especially when you consider like Equinox was made in California LA in the in the LA area yeah and Evil Dead was made by folks from Michigan in Tennessee and Michigan yep. and it's you know some of these other films that I mean, there's stuff from fucking like everywhere and you see the same things pop up in films and, and the same references and the same, and it's not like a, uh, it's just, it's what it is. It's a shared language. It's an, it's a common appreciation and it's the kind of thing that like Ray Bradbury or somebody would just be
1: like, that's all love. It's all love. It's because well, yeah, everybody loves these they're, things. They're make, uh, these people are making movies for the very people that love those movies that they make. Yes. And, they, and it's they,
0: yeah, and it, and it and it has a connection.
1: It's not for within
0: the same generation. It's not just an oral tradition that gets handed down. It's it's like people exist in the same space, like H.P. Lovecraft, piece of shit of a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, Robert Block began a correspondence with Lovecraft as a kid, and it led to you know Robert Block being a writer <laughs> and writing Psycho and. it's the same thing with Tom Sullivan watching Equinox when he was a kid and saying, oh, I can do that. And then spending three months in his basement with Bart Pierce to make these incredibly insane, gooey, gross composite and stop motion effects at the end of Evil Dead. Just like, you know, it's kind of like Equinox, but like, you know, splattery or.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, going back to the pro wrestling thing. Hulk Hogan, big piece of shit. Do you know how yeah. many how many current wrestlers that are entertaining other people and are good people were yeah. Hulkamaniacs as children? So many. Yeah. So many. Mind you, this is not an excuse to give Hulk Hogan work. But anyway, my overall point is, is that one generation influences the other and the other generation can enhance it and make it better if they choose to. Mm -hmm. And we're very fortunate that a lot of them do yeah. both in art and in humanity as a whole.
0: There's a comfort in familiarity and therefore there's a comfort in formula. Yes. And, and, but it's still nice to see things change, you know, just a little Mm -hmm. here and there, you know, whether it's the proper nouns changing or whether it's the context changing or whether it's whatever, like it's, it's interesting to watch it all evolve. And it's also interesting to know, you know, that Dennis Murin who grew up with, Ray Harryhausen and working in stop motion effects and practical effects also like was a digital pioneer with ILM like through Jurassic Park and through the abyss and all of these other things that he had a hand in.
1: Yeah. It's really cool to see artists that are within a certain niche or specialty influence another generation to enhance that specialty and then become essentially become the the queens and kings of whatever that is like mm-hmm. achieve a higher status than the people that have influenced them previously thus making the people that influence them king makers yeah it's
0: i mean it's yeah it's just it's it's a, it's a constantly evolving thing yeah where people constantly are gonna like grow and like i i mean i've seen it in my life too just you know through virtue of knowing people that went on to do better things. And then I, you know, I get to watch them kind of influence, you know, and it's and, really cool. The isn't next it? class, you know? Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. It's really cool. And it's also fostered by people like Forry Ackerman who, you know, who, when they, when they did a thing said, you know what, this is for everybody. Yep. I want everybody to be able to get involved in this. And he encouraged people. And, it's like what the cynics would call like an incubator now. <laughs> but this was just it was about like, no, nah, I I like this stuff. I'm gonna make my house into a museum of monster movie memorabilia that everyone can come and check out. I'm gonna make a letters section in my magazine where readers can get in touch with each other and answer ads and stuff. Mm-hmm. I you know, I'm gonna fuck, I'll 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 drive down to wherever and do some do some ADR. For a film, I'll yeah. introduce these kids to my friend Fritz, who just happens to be one of the most prominent genre writers ever. Like, it's I, that it, stuff.
1: It's community. Yeah. It's fostering a community and, a, yeah. and opening the gates to whomever wants to step in. That's all that it is.
0: Yeah. And Evil Dead was the same. It, it took them oh, longer. Yeah. and the, the the behind-the-scenes story of Evil Dead isn't quite as like, laid-back and fun. No, had thirteen people living in a cabin together. They ran out of money. Half of them left. There was well, only like five people by the I, end.
1: I would argue that the film industry was a bit more closed off. Well, being that they were in Michigan alone, that's that made it a bigger made it a bigger hurdle.
0: Yeah, they weren't. They weren't in L.A. Where it's like, hey, Jim Danforth, who already has a career as a matte painter, is going to work on our movie that we're making as kids. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, and. I would argue that it's harder to it was harder to make a movie around that time period than it would in the 60s, just because it's as time goes on, the more, for lack of a better term, precious filmmaking became up until the digital era. So yeah, there was a lot of like gatekeeping, and it's a lot easier to say no because you don't have access to an iPhone mm-hmm. and be like, "Well, fuck you, I'll just make this," yeah, and just post well, it online.
0: I'm, okay, so it's a good double, successful double feature.
1: This is successful du- double feature. If you like this podcast, it's obvious that you should watch this because if you like this podcast, you love one love horror movies and two love the history of them and all that. These are differently paced yeah. than modern horror and uh, both of them Equinox specifically uh, require you, like you said, to just sit back and be like, remember this is the 1960s, 1970s. So read the fuck lacks.
0: Yeah. And I think even more importantly than recognizing the the gap in the time is to just Mm -hmm. be like, remember, this is fun. Like this is supposed to be like, it does require a little more patience
1: like you mentioned before, these are people that love this type of movie and mm-hmm. made the type of movie for a very specific audience that would also love this type of movie. If you know people that like this type of movie, they will love this type of movie because oh, like you said, it's a, it's weird because it, this is equinox is a love letter to all those previous monster movies and evil dead is a love letter to equinox. So it's kind of like in a way, it's kind of like a child writing a love letter to uh, the parents that originally wrote a love letter to each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a punk band doing a cover that, like, a, of a folk standard, of like a folk group's biggest song. I you could, know? It's yeah, like,
1: yeah, yeah. It's like because uh, Dead, Dead Kennedy is covering Fleetwood Mac.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dead very much is
1: kind of like the thrash
0: version of Equinox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very like. And
1: I would love to hear a Thrash version of the chain, but that's me.
0: Oh my god, dude. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. Are there do you have any wrestling pointers you would give to wrestling either point. Ash or like because both of them kind of have some some there's like a Is even in the commentary of Evil Dead when at one point Linda leaps on Ash and he kicks his legs up on her, and and Sam Raimi in the commentary goes, the flying angel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Doing a monkey uh, flip. Are we talking in actual wrestling or the wonderful kayfabe world of professional like, wrestling? Oh, Using professional wrestling. Oh, professional like, wrestling physics? Like the, okay.
0: giant, the giant guy,
1: when uh-huh. he does this. <laughs> when he does the double axe handle?
0: He does the double axe handle yeah. and knocks the somebody po-
1: over. <laughs> or the Polish hammer. Yeah. Well, first of all, duck. Um, that's one if I could give any a universal recommendation is to always employ the Irish whip because since there's there isn't a second set of ropes all Mm -hmm. you have to do is ask one of your friends to like as soon as a deadite pops into the cabin ask one of your friends to open the door Irish whip them they are out the door and they will run forever (laughs) because they have no way to turn around and they can't stop
0: that's true that's true that is very true I hope, I hope you're all listening. If you ever end up in a cabin playing an audio recording mm-hmm. of a reading of the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, Irish Whip is your friend.
1: Irish Whip is your friend. And the worst case scenario, you miss the door and they crash into the wall and you just Irish them back and they'll crash into the wall again and then you try again to get them out the door.
0: And as we all know through those flying... Evil POV shots that those doors in that cabin are just gonna, you know.
1: Yeah, they're just gonna flop open. They're yeah. made. They're made out of I don't know particle board, <laughs> much like the doors in wrestling matches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. if they did a? What if it was
0: a table ladder chairs match? If it was to a, get the with the, with the Necronomicon
1: hanging. Well, like uh, the, the
0: briefcase, you know.
1: First, uh, uh, how how many participants?
0: Okay, we're talking
1: Ash. Mm-hmm.
0: Asmodeus, uh-huh. obviously. Asmodeus.
1: Ash, Ash Asmodius.
0: Uh-huh. Taurus and the Giant would have to be a separate match because they they're a different weight
1: class. There's no weight classes in professional I, wrestling. <laughs> I know, but there like, may be a cruiserweight title, but that was kayfabe to fuck begin with. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, there should be a separate like class for giants.
1: Well, I guess here's here's the thing, and you're talking about what I like to call the Haas division, which. Mm-hmm. Should be a regular thing in in wrestling circles, in my opinion. There needs to be one thing that I that I hope, because uh, there have been quote unquote Haas division matches and tournaments, but I what I want is a federation to actually have a Haas division where you have to be two seventy five and above,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the championship isn't a belt; it's just a big gold horseshoe that you put <laughs> straddle around oh, your wow. neck. You know? Oh wow! And it just says "horse." It just, <laughs> just imprinted, like it. just a gold horseshoe that just says has the word "horse." Anyway, but my my advice, if it's an odd number of competitors, is always the same, which is let those two fight, and you climb up and you grab the thing.
0: There you go. Just so like,
1: simple. just like you do in video games, ladder <laughs> matches. yeah. That's yeah, all yeah. you have to do. Is if they're stuck in the grapple animation. Meanwhile, you're up there, you grab the thing and you win. And you're done in two minutes and everyone's mad at you. I like it. Yeah.
0: Eric, where can people find you?
1: Find me on Twitter and only Twitter. At Eric W. Barnes. I don't have Insta and all that type of stuff. You can read my jokes, (laughs) read my just rants and ravings and follow all my projects there. I also highly encourage you to check out a web series I do with another comedian named Nat Baymol called Look on the Bright Side. You can follow that on Look on the BS on Twitter, which is semi-active because we're on hiatus. But we have six episodes of very joke-infused commentaries, for lack of a better term, uh, on just bringing out the silver linings in the shittiest (laughs) things on Earth without insulting your intelligence and without toxic positivity. So...
0: Well, yeah, we definitely, that's important.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, at Eric W. Barnes. And Andy, thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you.
0: Dude, it was so great to talk to you. It was so good to see you again. Yeah. Thanks
1: so much. Let's, let's make it more than once a year. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Once every pandemic anniversary, there you go we, is when we can see each other. Actually, uh,
1: this <laughs> one that's, year and one day. I think, uh, look at you, look uh, at you! Here's here's what's dumb. I think it actually has been near one year and one day,
0: right around this. there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's been right around since, there since, so since we started this venture. I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna keep an eye open for any blonde ladies with cross necklaces walking up.
1: I'm going to keep an eye out on Paunchy white men posing as the devil On horseback
0: Yeah, you definitely need to stay away from that Mm -hmm. For sure Mm -hmm.
1: Class Class deceased Deceased.
0: (laughs) Okay, good